Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are continuing our preaching series through uh, the end of the Gospel of Matthew this fall, a series we're calling The Way of the Cross. And where we're looking at these final stories from Matthew's Gospel, these final teachings and parables and healings from the very last weeks and days of Jesus' life. And we're particularly looking to those to see how they highlight the difference between the way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom, and the way of our world. And so in today's text, Jesus tells this parable that challenges us to really consider who we think is deserving of God's generosity. And I think before we get into it, it's helpful to just know some of the broader context of this parable, even though that wasn't part of our reading today. So I'm just going to spend a moment telling us what just happened at the end of Matthew 19, before the parable that we heard from Matthew 20. Sometimes those page breaks in the scriptures are just really arbitrary. So at the end of Matthew 19, it's a story that most of you probably know, Uh, But where a rich young man comes and talks to Jesus, he wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And he says, I've kept all the commandments since my birth. Is there anything else I'm lacking? And Jesus tells him, there's just one more thing. Go and sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. But this is too much for the rich man. He goes away sad and disappointed. And Jesus tells the disciples that it is really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter, as he often does, pipes in and he asks a question. He says, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, we 12 disciples, we actually have abandoned all of our earthly possessions and followed you. It's not quite what you told the rich man to do because we didn't have to sell anything, but still, we have given up a lot to follow you. So you promised him treasure in heaven. What is our reward going to be? And there's just this hint in the language of Peter, this sound of just a hint of smugness. We managed to do what that rich guy couldn't do. And there's just a hint of grasping of what's in it for us. And yet Jesus doesn't rebuke his question. He doesn't rebuke this question, wondering what his reward is going to be. He tells Peter and the 12, yeah, actually, there is a reward. One day when Jesus ascends to his throne, the 12 disciples are going to share in his reign and in his authority. And then he keeps going. He tells Peter that actually everyone is going to get an award, a reward. Anyone who has given up security or houses or money or family for the kingdom is going to be compensated a hundredfold. Whatever they gave up in this life, they are going to be disproportionately, generously compensated in the next. And then Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last first. It's this clear statement that in the kingdom of heaven, the tables are going to be turned. God will generously reward those first disciples, and God will generously reward everyone else too. It's this word of caution to Peter that the kingdom is not a meritocracy, to not be so smug that he has got it right. The kingdom doesn't operate on who gets there first, who has done more for God, who is more deserving. The kingdom operates on God's grace, freely given. 
And that grace is always going to subvert and disrupt and challenge and surprise all of our human expectations of deserving. And then Jesus drives the point home with the parable from Matthew 20. It begins, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now last week when we talked about forgiveness, it came up again that a denarius was a fair day's wage for a laborer. And here we see it again. And this is especially important as a wage for a day laborer because at that time day laborers, much like our time, are the most vulnerable workers in this economy, more vulnerable than servants and slaves and the lowest of the low. Because they didn't have any guarantee of work, any guarantee of protection, they couldn't expect a fair wage, they couldn't expect what any day would bring. Every day was full of uncertainty. Would they find work? Would they be treated fairly? Would they be paid at all? What would they be paid? When would they be paid? Or would they be exploited? To be a day laborer was to exist hand to mouth, completely at the mercy of whoever was hiring that day. It was to be poor and vulnerable and extremely insecure. And here the vineyard owner has already promised a fair wage and hired a full load of the workers that he needs but then he keeps going back and doing it again. He goes back at 9 a.m. and at noon and at 3 p.m. And just whoever he finds standing around, offering them a job, sending him into his vineyard, and promising that he's going to pay them whatever is right. And then he does it one last time at 5 p.m. It's just an hour before the workday ends. The people who haven't been hired by now are, for whatever reason, the most undesirable workers. They might be too young or too old. They might not be as skilled or as strong as the other workers. Or they might have a bad reputation. They might have stolen from the last person who hired them. They might have alcohol on their breath. We don't know why they are still there, but they are still there. And whatever the reason, the vineyard owner hires them too. And he sends them into his fields just for an hour. And he promises to pay them whatever is right. There's no indication at all in the text that this going and getting more workers is for some practical reason. We don't hear that the harvest is urgent. We don't hear that it's bigger than normal, that suddenly he realizes he needs more workers than he has. We're left to conclude that the only reason the vineyard owner keeps doing this is because he actually cares about the poor. He dignifies every laborer with a promise of work and fair payment and he cuts into his own profits so that everyone around him can have enough. As a businessman, he's pretty foolish, pretty uncalculating and indiscriminate. And this parable is not meant to be a lesson in how to run a business, and yet we can't escape the fact that the God figure in this parable, the vineyard owner, goes out of his way to be generous to the vulnerable, way beyond whatever value they add to his business. And we can't escape the fact that Jesus tells this parable immediately after a story of a rich man who couldn't bear to part with his wealth. And we can't escape the fact that Jesus tells this parable in Matthew's Gospel where he is always talking about money. 
where he's always saying not to store up treasure on earth, that you can't serve both God and money. This parable is ultimately not about business principles. It's about the generosity of God, and we're going to talk more about that. But there is this invitation in the parable to practice that generosity ourselves with our own money, the way the vineyard owner does, to learn how to part more freely with our money so that vulnerable people have enough. And this kind of indiscriminate, uncalculating, even foolish generosity is a way that we participate in the kingdom of God, the way we participate in the generosity and the abundant resources of God. Well, back to the story in the parable. The end of the workday comes, and the vineyard owner tells his foreman to pay people in reverse order, so from the last one who showed up to the first. And so he starts paying the five o'clockers, and he pays them one denarius, a whole day's wage for an hour's work. And then he does it on down the line. And so the people who have been there since dawn, who have been working all day long, see this happening and think, wow, if he is being that generous with these short-term workers, we might get paid a little bit more. But when it's their turn, they're paid a denarius too. And they're really disappointed. And it's not that they're being cheated. This is the wage that they agreed upon. But somehow it feels really unfair when everyone is getting a denarius. Reading at verse 11, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. This grumble sounds a lot like Jonah in our earlier reading, who is sitting on that hill outside of Nineveh and basically pouting at God because of his mercy to the people of Nineveh. Jonah really doesn't approve of that city, and he doesn't like that God was merciful to them. And it also sounds a lot like the older brother in another really well-known parable about the prodigal son where his wayward little brother has gone off and squandered his fortune and lived loose. And when he finally comes home destitute and desperate, the father throws him this lavish party, but the older brother waits outside and refuses to go in. And he says to his father, I have been here faithfully serving you, being so responsible my whole life, and you never threw me a party. He's so frustrated. It's actually really remarkable how the generous figure in each of these stories, whether it's the father with the older brother, or God with Jonah, or the vineyard owner with the day laborers, all of these respond with patience and kindness, and they even give an explanation for their mercy. And I think we can conclude from that that it is okay to bring our complaint and our grumbling and our frustration to God and then to listen, to take what he says in these words of scripture and to take what he says to us in prayer, to hear what he has to say with all of our grumbling. And here the vineyard owner responds, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all begrudge God's generosity. I don't think we have to think very long or very hard to come up with our own personal version of a five o'clock worker or a Ninevite 
or a wayward younger brother, someone that we just do not want God to be generous to, someone whose good fortune feels really unfair and makes us feel bitter and envious, someone who doesn't deserve to be our equal because they haven't put in equal work. And the parable just invites us to sit in that discomfort, to notice how we grumble, to notice how we begrudge generosity. And Jesus leaves the parable on that uncomfortable note. And he repeats what he said earlier to Peter. So the last will be first, and the first last. The kingdom of God is not a meritocracy. And this is actually harder for us to grasp than we might want to think. But we have lived our whole lives in a world that is a meritocracy. We have taken all of our cues from this world. And it teaches that our performance and our achievements determine what we are worth and what we deserve to get. We live in a world of winners and losers, of high price tags and zero-sum games, measuring up, constant scorekeeping. Even in the church, we often absorb this distorted message that if we do the right things and pray the right words and behave in the right way and just put the right inputs in, then God will give us the outputs we want. God will bless us. We've been conditioned to believe that we and everyone else should get what we deserve. But that's not good news. That's not the gospel. God's kingdom operates on grace, not on human deserving. We can't get more from God by being good, and we can't get less from God by being bad. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, before we had done anything to earn it, anything to deserve it. Jesus bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat for us to make us his equals. And we come in at the 11th hour and reap all the riches of his grace. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to deserve it. We don't have to make our way clawing and fighting in God's kingdom. It is all a gift. Our invitation is not to begrudge it, to learn to receive it. God's free gift of grace is for Ninevites and wayward brothers and 11th hour workers and for grumbling prophets and older brothers and the all day workers. It's for the last and the least and the undeserving and it's for us. So Lord, retrain us for your kingdom of grace. Help us unlearn the world's way of deserving and learn your kingdom way of generosity. Amen.